Will, what's going on, man? Just got back from uh, from racing this weekend, so settling in again. Settling in, back in the groove. So right. some of some of you guys may have seen the other podcast that we did with Will, and I actually I sent you over some of these questions. They we might touch on some topics that we talked about before, but I figured this would be good to have all in one because super excited to announce that Will has joined Evoke as a coach with us, and there are always athletes that, that ask. Hey, what's this coach's philosophy? What do they think about this? And having a podcast with these types of questions that I think are really interesting to ask a lot of different coaches, which I kind of ran through this with Adam Mills from Source Endurance. And I've asked Tom Bell some of these in different podcasts, but I kind of think it's interesting to talk about some basic concepts, we'll call them, but every coach sort of has a different way to go going at it. So I thought this would be a great kind of jumping off point with you as the newest member of Evoke and super pumped to have you and uh, just jump into this. Oh, oh. I'm excited. So let's do the, the one that out that I think is the most basic, but gets asked the most and has the widest variety of answers in heart rate versus power for training. Um, what do you use for analyzing like a zone two ride? Do you have someone go by heart rate, power, both, or anything else? I think um, it really depends like the time of year um, zone two and like kind of the athletes mentality that time of year personally um, most of the time I'll just like start off pacing off of power um, and then kind of monitor my heart rate and if like my heart rate goes over a certain amount um, that kind of tells me I need to drop the power down just a little bit um, just to kind of keep it within that sort of stress level. Um, and, and really that, depending on, sorry, is that in what time of year is that, or is that all the time that you look at that? Um, yeah, if it's just a vanilla zone two riding, um, right now, actually I lost my heart rate monitor, um, at like one of the races. So just straight power, um, right now. Um, but yeah, that's most of the time, if I'm doing a zone two ride, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And yeah, for, for most pacing, keeping it in that heart rate range, um, at least not breaking above the top of that heart rate range kind of helps to keep the the ride focused on what you're looking for. Um, so answer is both, but, yeah. uh, yeah, start off pacing with power and then go from there. Once, once the heart rate starts to, you know, decouple a little bit, or if it doesn't, you just keep going as planned. Do you have a percentage that you follow specifically for like the upper end of heart rate? Um, yeah, just like kind of the, the zones in training peaks there that I set for my athletes. Uh, yeah, if they, if they go like more than five beats above that, um, that certain percentage, um, in their, in their heart rate zone, then we'll kind of, I think it's like 70%. Um, but yeah, uh, it depended on the athlete, just have that heart rate. Um, it is interesting EPM. how some athletes, they're just different. You know, you got to, everyone is different. I have one and indoors. Now that more people write indoors, indoors versus outdoors. I have this athlete. We laugh every time it's, he's noticeably higher heart rate inside same ride. We've talked about fans, cooling, all these other things. I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's just him. We're like, it's not bad. It, this is just how it comes out every time. So what about similar question then in terms of power? People always say, should I ride at high zone two or low zone two? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, lately, lately I've personally been experimenting with a little higher zone two. Um, mm -hmm. It really depends like 
beginning of the year, I'll go low zone two just to be be building that engine um, kind of from the bottom there. Um, but once your your body adapts to it, and if you haven't changed your zones at all, you can kind of stretch it into a little bit higher to get a little more benefit out of those zone two rides. Um, so yeah, another one of those answers where it's like dependent on where you are in the season and yeah, what your, what your goals are as far as zone two endurance training goes. Um, but yeah, I've, a little higher in the zone two, really just like the highest you can go in zone two without causing undue stress um, and impacting workouts that are going to be more key later in the week or later in the block. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just to, to maximize your, your uptake from that like zone two ride. Um, yeah. Cool. Without overdoing it. That works. What about VO two max training? Do you have athletes do it by heart rate or power or both or something else? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for VO two, it's always going to be like a pacing and mental battle. Um, especially once you get later into those VO two sets. Um, I just, I actually did some of my earlier VO two stuff this week and power to start off is always a good go. Um, but yeah, really not taking power personally. Once your RPE starts to decouple with the power, um, it like, it's always going to get hard at the end and you just got to do, what you can sustain to the end of that. Um, but yeah, power range is pretty much always going to be a given on VO2, especially like shorter VO2 stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Heart rate's not always going to like reflect that you're actually in that zone until later in the workout and later in the workout, it might reflect a, a much higher zone. So mm. um, when you say yeah, short, are you talking like 40, 20s? Are you talking like three minute? When you say shorter, what would, what would you define that as in terms of VO2 max training? Yeah, mainly looking at like a three minute one. 40 20s pacing with heart rate would be personally for me, that'd be difficult um, just because of like the on off nature of, um, I guess, over under intervals um, or on off intervals. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those those three minute ones. I mean, once you get to five minutes, your, your heart rate might steady out. But yeah, power is a, a more useful tool for me um, when pacing with those VO2 max intervals. Cool. What do you kind of keep it on the VO2 max thread here a little bit? How do you decide what type of VO2 max workout for different types of athletes? And maybe for a newer listener who might be saying, well, what is a different type of VO2 max workout? Maybe we could say, you know, there's some people that believe in doing VO2 max more by heart rate, which you're kind of not saying you do as much, but like a hard start and then just keep heart rate elevated. Or some people are very like classic five by five minutes at, you know, uh, VO two max power, or some believe more in 40 twenties. How do you, and then some even more like, you know, Steven Seiler has four by eights that are really like a super threshold that becomes a VO two max interval. Mm-hmm. How do you look at all those different ones and decide what to give each athlete? Yeah, this is another one of those highly dependent um, interval prescriptions where if we're going to a more specific part of the year, um, I would give them whatever interval we're doing that's close to their course or goal event, um, but building into that goal event. Uh, also, like, yeah, if it's a if it's a crit racer or cross racer or something like that it's going to be more more on off stuff uh, a little closer to race season or during race season um yeah it's it's really dependent on what that athlete needs to like boost as far as their um vo2 stuff goes and where they get benefit i know 
when I started doing over under stuff, I got like massive gains really quickly from it. Um, but they can like those gains can level off. You, you hit that plateau with what you can get from a specific interval. Um, and maybe even your motivation or like you just settle into uh, a certain pacing for that specific interval where, yeah, you're just not mentally able to like push over that. Um, or you, you know, what your pacing needs to be to finish that interval. So you just stick in that. Um, so yeah, mixing it up a little bit can help, um, get through those kind of barriers and kind of push the athlete to the next level. Um, so yeah, a, a good mix, whatever specific to your race and then, yeah, just, just adding in, adding in what we can to boost, um, that particular zone or effort. I like that. Cause I think everybody that's trained long enough has had the experience where you're like, Oh, this is working. I'm going to keep doing this. And you look back, you're like, damn, I've kind of been doing the same thing for eight weeks and it's not working. Yeah. Should I do more of this? It's like, no, you got to change it <laughs> up. And yeah, that was <laughs> the biggest pitfall that I fell into when I was doing the self-coach thing. It was just I found what I, and then I found what I liked and I was biased yeah. that way. I'm like, no, it's still, I'm just gonna ride threshold. It's working. It's like, man, <laughs> change it up. Do you look at like percentages of FTP to VO2 max at all to dictate training, whether you then would decide this person needs to work more on FTP or this person needs to work on VO2 max or, how would like, cause those are two really important things. How do you kind of pick which road to go down? Yeah, it's, um, man, I think a comprehensive view of that is pretty important just as far as like, yeah, you can, you can look at the power curve or like percentage of FTP and like FTP is always going to be an estimation. Like we have the critical power thing, um, and every athlete's different and you can kind of boost that power curve to be a nice, like steady, smooth curve. But if you're not using it in the race, like you don't need that particular interval. Um, so looking at race demands and, and looking at where that athlete struggles in races and where that athlete could get, you know, a, a potential head start in races um, and kind of boost those to their max capacity. If there's low hanging fruit, yeah, you want to get that up. But yeah, I don't know a percentage of FTP is not like something I'm going to focus on with most people um unless it's like a real a real stressor for them where they're like yeah my vo2 is just like not where it needs to be and then you kind of have to look at their testing protocol and maybe maybe we need to test something different or test something a different way um get more real world and see what their motivation is for a 20 minute test because sometimes that can just be way too much i think the best thing that I've pulled or hear from you that I think really can resonate with a lot of the people that kind of listen to our channel. Cause I think there's a good amount of people that do race is how does this all play into your race day or your event? And that was, again, the big well, pitfall I fell into was people were talking about, you got to do longer sweet spot. You got to do long, you got to do 90 minutes. You got to do two hours. And I remember doing these two hour really long intervals where it looked cool. And my power curve, I was like, wow, that's so much power, yes. but I never did it in a race really. And you know, what was the point of it? And, uh, it definitely hurt me. I mean, I guess I could, 
Yeah, I won't go down that wormhole, but yeah, how make sure you're really critically thinking about what are you training for? What's the whole point of this? And especially, yeah, when you're on your own to your own devices and you get really stuck in on a particular type of like rider you want to be and you're not focusing on your event demands. Um, I remember when I first started self-coaching and I was like, I'm going to get light, like I'm going to do all this one minute stuff. And I'd go ride this one minute hill as hard as I could, like 10 times with like a two minute break. And then I got to my event, which was towed. And I was like real light and I could do one minute's great. And then all of toad, I was just not able to do what, what actually tour of America's Dairylands is, which is much different than one minute all out with a two minute rest. Um, <laughs> and then I was getting beat by dudes that were, you know, 50 pounds heavier than me. I was like, why, why did I do that the whole time? Like I was just not focusing on the actual demands. Um, well, so it's, it's important to have that objective. View. You know, you know, you actually bring up a really interesting point that I've thought a lot about over the past few years. And especially once COVID happened and racing got shook up and I was like, okay, I've got this year period. What am I really focusing on for when racing resumes? And I know this can be a pitfall when we look at like regional or local racing and then athletes that want to go and do a big race, or we could even scale it down. Say maybe you're a cat three and you're racing cat threes and you do have a goal of getting into one, two races. When I was doing some of these long sweet spot efforts, I was able to win some local races. Cause if you can go put out megawatts for two hours, if you can get off the front, they're not going to have, there's not a big enough chase to catch you. But then when I went to races that I really would like kill to do well in like a big p1 race i when everything when the crap hit the fan i was out the back and so what was my focus did i want to win the little race and i kept winning those but then i didn't get better at the bigger races and it really took some more thinking of well maybe i could still do well at a local race if i didn't have that two hour power but my five minute power and my eight minute power when things get really hard change so you know, we want to be better at everything and it's just not possible. So it's like, okay, take, take that down a little bit, get better at the really critical point stuff. And you might also have to change how you're approaching a race. Like I wanted to time trial off the front of something that's not going to work if there's pro teams there, like what it's just, but I was in my rut of like, this is how I'm doing it. This is what I'm Mm -hmm. good at. And you got to shake it up. And I think that's really hard sometimes by yourself. And that's why people have been listening. If this is the first podcast, people might not have heard us kind of talking about this. Have a training buddy. If you don't ha- can't have access to a coach, get a friend where you're kind of gut checking each other because mm-hmm. the other person will keep you honest. And that is invaluable to be able to talk to somebody about your training when they know what you've done for the past three months. Like if somebody emails me and says, hey, I've got this event coming up in a month. It's like, well, I, I really, I don't, who are you? I don't know you. What are you good at? What are you bad at? So just, yeah, really see the full picture and don't be worried about totally shaking up what you're doing because it, it might help you in the next level, always be looking down the road. So what uh, strength training? I know we touched on this last time, but let's talk about it again real quick. Strength training, yes or no, and maybe that's athlete dependent or what's your thought about in the gym? Yeah, I personally, I big advocate for strength training. Um, I guess I, I've been lifting since I like started high school. Um, so I'm very comfortable with it. And 
I've always had the ability to just like walk into a, like a standard gym and kind of have a plan and know what I'm going in to do and what the focus of that is. Um, and yeah, like as an, as an elite athlete, if, if you're not strength training, you could be losing, um, some sort of performance value, whether that's injury prevention or, um, some sort of like, yeah, specific muscle, um, endurance or recruitment thing. You like, we don't, I don't, I don't feel like we entirely know why it's so good for us. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think the benefits are definitely there for strength training. If it's causing more stress in a person's training than say like a, an hour ride with some intervals would be, um, or if that person's really time starved and the gym's an hour away, or it's going to take too long. Um, we might look at doing it a lot less, but I would say, yeah, just like general strength training, or maybe even some core stability stuff, um, can have a, a big effect, especially if you're, if you're doing anything on the bike, that's going to require excess coordination. So not, not doing like turning, strength training helps because you just have all that stability um and all those little muscles that you you have better proprioception yeah just the the minutiae of stuff you you kind of learn how to use your body um in in a more fine-tuned way which i think can be really important because we are we are athletes like we're cycling is a very you know kind of one-dimensional thing where yeah you are just pedaling a bike but there is more into it than that and you have to have some coordination um especially once you get into more technical races and like more demanding stuff, gravel specifically. Um, you can't just ride your bike, um, in a straight line on the road and like expect to be good at gravel. Like you've got to, you've got to have fine skills. Um, even if you do have good power, you've got to, you've got to be able to back it up with like actual real life skills. So I think, I think strength training has got a lot of different ways that it can help us. Um, and I mean, through, through race season, it can be more, um, demanding as far as causing muscle fatigue, but, uh, yeah, I would usually, usually wean it out throughout race season when we're trying to recover, but yeah, I love the gym. When you say wean it out, would you totally eliminate it or what would your minimal be? Yeah, it, it depends. Um, I think during a big race block, we don't, we don't really need it most of the time. Um, if it's convenient and accessible, and it's not going to cause, uh, yeah, a lot of stress to do. I'd love to throw it in. Um, but if it's, if it's going to affect recovery, uh, just by having that extra stressor in there. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very dependent on access to, to gym. If we're on the road, so like I, I travel all the time. So like if I'm in Tucson for a month, um, I I'm going to do a little like core workout or something like that. Um, because I don't have access to a gym, but if, if I'm there for yeah more than that, I'm going to try and get access to a gym and, uh, and get some, some quality work in, in the gym. But yeah, it's, it's dependent on the, the stress it would add on top of that. But yeah, throughout the race season, recovery is a must. Do you think it's a, do you think it has to be heavy or can you do medium weight stuff to kind of bridge the gap between bigger sessions or what's your thought process on that? Yeah, I think, Oh man. So the, the whole like not gaining muscle thing has been a focus for me for a long time. I personally, um, have the ability to put on like a lot of muscle mass very quickly. Um, so it's been a focus to not do that because, um, sometimes that can be a detriment when you're going up hills with all the muscle mass. Um, so, uh, I was doing a lot of like lower rep, higher, higher weight 
stuff um, where you're really recruiting those muscles and kind of keeping the strength up, but not necessarily inducing as much hypertrophy as like high volume um, mm-hmm. weightlifting would. But um, yeah, lately I've been kind of experimenting with higher velocity stuff just to get the explosivity in um, mainly yeah, closer to racing uh, to add some more race specific weight training and kind of get those muscle adaptations where you are going to be recruiting a lot of muscle and you need, yeah, you need the strength, but you also need to be able to contract that muscle quickly, um, and move, move fast. Um, so yeah, a little bit of both, Uh, I'd say like a periodization method sometimes can, can work with strength training. Um, but there's, yeah, there's different ways in which you've got to do it depending on what you're looking for from said strength training. Yeah. It's so, you know, when you had made the comment of not sure if we exactly know what the benefits are, like, I would agree with that a hundred percent. I can't even count the number of athletes that will make it common and just say, I just feel more solid on the bike when I'm lifting. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly what they mean. It's like the pedal stroke is deeper or your glutes. Everything is like, I think the firing of muscles changes, I've sometimes just like looked at my legs when I'm, you know, you're like on a hard FTP effort. I'm like, damn, my calves look freaking huge from the front as opposed to when I'm not lifting. Like it is just, and every other sport is in the gym. And so I think cycling and some other endurance sports are just lagging behind a little bit in, in this. Yeah. So anyways, it's really interesting to hear where everyone's at with that. But um, those that believe in it are usually huge fans. So it's, yeah. I think we're all getting closer to a consensus on that it is important. I think it's important just do people want to carve the time out? It's yeah. You know, somebody asked me a question one time. They said, Well, and I don't want to make this an aerofit plug, but they're like, if aerofit works, why isn't everybody doing it? It's like, because guess what? It's freaking work. Everybody doesn't want to sit down for 10 minutes and do a breathing exercise in, you know, like looking at the wall or watching it. So you got to, is it worth it to you to carve out the time to do it? Um, couple miscellaneous questions. You're looking at an athlete. What do you see as some like big signs of fatigue and on the other side of the coin signs of fitness and how does that, how do you play from there? Yeah. Uh, with man, with athletes, it's sometimes pretty tough because you do have a lot of data. Um, and especially with like the new recorders, you've got like, HRV and just like an excess of data, um, sleep hours, all that stuff. And like, everyone's got access to numbers that tell them how they're feeling, or Mm -hmm. even in, even in a race where you like see that number and you're like, Oh, I felt way better than whatever that power says I did. Um, Mm -hmm. or the opposite. So I think, yeah, having a firm relationship with an athlete, just where you're getting feedback consistently and you can interpret that feedback for what it actually means even if that athlete themselves doesn't understand their sensations in in relation to what that means as far as their fatigue or their fitness goes um so as coaches we have that unique perception of like we have an objective view of what you're doing um hopefully it's it's comprehensive and that we can see like what your life demands are Um, and we've had a lot of feedback. So like, yeah, feedback is super important. Commenting on your, your training, um, just so we know what's going on and how you're feeling. And if you're having like an emotional day and you just can't do the 
the race or the ride, like that's, that's important too. Like your, your feelings are important. So yeah, having that, having that feedback from the athlete and understanding what they're saying oftentimes can be like way more important than actually the the raw numbers or what their heart rate's doing. Um, but yeah, a comprehensive view of just like, yeah, what, what they're saying to you and then also what their numbers are showing. Um, mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it, it, what you said of just sometimes an athlete might not know how to interpret how they're feeling and that's, or things that they don't realize they're doing like lack of commenting or they write longer reviews on races where they felt really good and other, like, it's just interesting how they digest their own training because you're in the micro, like you're just in the forest banging out every workout. It's sometimes harder to see the trends than somebody looking in on your own stuff. That's yeah. It's a good call. Really trying to see the big picture and, and help them see the big picture as they're explaining to you what's going on. So what do you have any, sessions like training sessions or rides that you give to people that they just seem to love that is like you hear more often than not like man i love that one yeah i oh um that's a good question oftentimes like a simple a simple workout can be something somebody needs like yeah they just want to go rip their mountain bike around a like around a course hot lap stuff like that um I, I do coach a, a few like marathon mountain bikers. So those hot laps, maybe like a hard start into a hot lap. Um, just having that uh, like application where they can see, oh, I did this hard start and then I did the hot lap and I like am getting the experience from that effort and it directly translate and translates into their race effort. Um, or doing that in like a fatigue state, just having them be able to link that to what's actually happening in the race Mm -hmm. can help with motivation. And then you get the feedback like, Oh, this is how I felt. And it it felt just like a race. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, that can be really exciting. And yeah, if you're in the middle of a race and you're like, Oh, I'm prepared for this. um, Just that mental, you can turn it on. Like I I know what's coming um, and I know what I can do in response to it. Um, Yeah. So those, those specific race intervals can be really exciting um, and then like the longer intervals where you can see active progression, maybe uh, like muscular endurance or FTP stuff, threshold stuff mm-hmm. where, yeah, you can see every workout you, you're getting a little better and your RPE might go down for a given percentage or you, you might get more power for a given time. So those are, those can be really exciting too. That's when you talk about like hot lab workouts and things like that. With you, you do, you know, you race gravel, cross, you've kind of done a lot of the different off-road disciplines. How do you coach athletes on things like go find the fastest lines or go improve your skills or, you know, you're doing the biggest crits also. So like, Hey, you need to work on cornering. I guess we could call them soft skills as opposed to like power or heart rate training. What's a way that you help to guide people through that? And, um, well, I'll just leave the question there. Yeah. Oh man. Off-road, there's just so many lessons you can learn just because every course is going to have a different vibe. You're going to have like almost every corner you're going to have different, even if you're hitting that corner the second time, like there could be a different line. Now Um, there's a new rut that you got to hit. So I think actual application um, at like a race pace is a big bang for buck. Um, Hot laps are awesome when you're, when you're going hard, um, but you're also, needing to use fine motor skills um 
that can be really hard um, in off-road racing and in crits. I'm, I mean, I remember specifically like at Winston-Salem this past year, um, I, I took a really like hot lap up this hill and then we were doing the descent and I had just a little gap. So I had to keep going on the descent and just seeing cross-eyed and then you're taking the corners. just a little weird. So then I'm like rubbing my shoulder on the metal barricade. Mm. And then once you do that twice, you're like, Ooh, this is like, I'm in the box here. I need to like understand what I'm doing with this corner. Um, so you just have to pay way more attention. I think actual application, just getting a lot of experience doing, um, like corners, different corners, stuff like that is, is a big benefit. Um, alongside doing like film work where there's so much stuff on YouTube where you can just go look at this race and somebody has got a GoPro video of it. And they're like taking this weird line and just like analyzing all that stuff, but really paying attention, um, to specific things. And sometimes it's just one less in a race. Like, Oh, I took this corner on this line that guy took it on this line and he exited the corner faster than I did and didn't have to pedal as much. And like, if you just take one lesson from everyone, um, you're not going to get worse. Yeah. It's always interesting too, when you can, you know, you, maybe you go to a different city and you go out on a crit course and you do a couple laps. And I would always try and take a couple turns at what felt like race speed, but then you get in the race and it's like, Oh damn, this changes it. We're going way faster. This is a lot different. So it's the first few laps can always be interesting, but what is something that kind of excites you about the future of training and coaching? Man, I honestly, um, we've, I've had the like awesome experience of being involved in a lot of like junior and development programs. Um, so that's, that's super exciting to see like a reinvigorated, um, excitement for cycling but also with like recent series and what the uci and world tour is doing and, and what gravel's doing um having more women in sport or at least a somewhat close to like equal focus on women in sport in some way then that's going to be so good for us like we're we're really lacking um women's coverage and like outreach to women. And that's like, that's such a good part of the sport. Like watching women's racing is awesome. And like, I hope, I hope that continues to grow um, at a good pace. Um, Cause it's, it hasn't been even really ever. Um, and it needs to be, uh, I think, yeah, with, with new crit series, we're at trying to get it even, but like just the fact that women have less racing and, you know, less, less money, um, yeah, equalizing that and then getting more women into racing, we're going to see such a big shift and like so much more excitement into the sport. So yeah, w- women's racing is going to be, going to be my I, pick. I, I think a big thing too, is even be- like way before the equal money and payout at high level races is I've had some women that I've coached where a really big pain point is as they upgrade you know, you can go to a women's race and you might be a cat four and you're racing cat ones because they combine the field all the time. And mm-hmm. I hope that there's, you know, I understand promoters are like, Hey, you need to have this type of field size, but it has been a major pain point for multiple women that have even just reached out to me like, Hey, I know you coach some women. What are they doing in this? And like this area of the country. And it's just lower numbers. They all get bunched together. The cat ones absolutely shred 
the cat fours and then the cat fours their race feels like they're just chasing people like they were we're not even racing we get dropped on the first any undulation and i don't know what the answer is to that but i hope someone smarter can figure out a way to kind of because that's the entry you know like if you're just getting your face pounded in right off the bat it's like ah, i think i'm good with this maybe i'm gonna go do a triathlon yeah. instead it's you know it's not very welcoming so yeah hopefully if somebody's listening they have uh an answer to help solve that problem because it, it's tough to coach through for sure what are your number one or maybe one two three whatever tips for recovery for athletes when they go do big hard sessions like things you just like to pass along that have worked for you and worked for other athletes that you coach yeah that's a hard one i mean it's it gets more difficult the more busy uh or time starved an athlete is just because they get done with a hard session and they've got to go to work or, you know, they've got to take care of kids, stuff like that. Um, sleep, the, the low hanging fruit is obvious where you need to get sleep. You need to eat enough. Um, let's pretend like nothing's obvious. Cause you might have nothing's obvious. somebody for the first time. Who's like, just trying to get into training. So like sleep. Yeah. Huge, massive. What's the, what's yeah. the other one you said? Uh, eating enough sleep. Dude, I don't yeah. think that's that's not obvious for a lot of people. People are like, I got to be light. Not, I got to cut weight. I got to da, 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 da. like they go on this yeah. mega ride and then they don't eat anything. It's like, what are you doing? It's surprising how easy it is to cut weight when you're training. Like it's you don't need to heavily uh, calorically restrict that can that can cause a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I man, there's so many tips. But yeah, eating enough is, is a big one. I'd say. My, my like main tip um, for those who have the low hanging fruit would be just eating enough on rides um, where you mm -hmm. get home and you don't have to, you know, catch up to what you've just done as much um, like a good, a good recovery meal, but you've been eating enough on that ride to not be severely glycogen depleted, especially those zone two things um, where you're ready for the next day. Awesome. What do you have? Maybe let's go even more basic then what's like a number one tip for a new rider who's caught the bug and they're like, I just want to start getting faster. What do you tell them to do? Yeah. Um, whew, man, uh, going, going back to when I was in college and I was super excited, like more it, <laughs> super it, excited, point, super excited. You're just like way more excited than is good for you. Um, and you can get caught up in that. And one of, one of the guys, what do you mean team, by that? told me, what do you mean by that? You just you just do too much too soon. You're okay. not you're not ready for stuff. You're watching oh like Matthew Vanderpool rode five hours right. like this pro did this, so I should try it. Um, and you know that's like it it could be a good like goal. You're like oh I want to build to that one day, but having a realistic view of that stuff and like understanding where you're at at the moment. But what what someone told me was you just got to stay in the sport. Like man, you're excited right now, but be consistent. Um, stay in the sport and like, you'll get better. Uh, I think linear improvement is yeah. Overlooked a lot of the time. And if you just get a little better every time, one day you're going to look back and be like, wow, I, like I had a real struggle just getting up that hill, you know, four years ago. And now I've got the KOM on it or something like that. So yeah. <laughs> consistency is a big deal. Longevity. I think that's actually a question I want to add to our athlete intake. Like, are you in this for three to 10 years or are you just trying to be good for a summer for some reason? Because there are people that are doing that. And I, hey, that's your choice. But it has been uh, 
so interesting. Somebody had made a comment to me on Strava and they said, damn, dude, you just do 20 hour weeks. And I was like, this is interesting. I wonder, I've, I never really had focused on volume for a really long time. It was my coach never was targeting an hour ever, or he never told me about it. I didn't even know that was a thing. And so I was just pedaling away, doing what he told me to do. So I went back and I was like, huh, I wonder when I started doing 20 hour weeks and for, I don't have the data from the first two years of training when I was using like a cat eye and it was like cadence only, and there was no GPS on my bike. So at least for the first seven years of training, I think I did under 20 20 hour weeks. And I think that would shock a lot of people who, who, to your first point, people were like, Oh my God, I got to train more. I got to do what you're doing. I'm like, don't no, you don't. That's actually probably going to inhibit your growth and you will maybe be in the sport for 18 months. I think it's really important for athletes to follow their plan and compare yourself to your previous self. And that's it. I'm, I'm thankful mm-hmm. there was no straw, or there was no Instagram. Uh, what's your Instagram? I don't think there was Instagram maybe my third year. Cause I think my first picture is when I was, yeah, I do remember that actually. I was like, oh, this is a new app Instagram. I was drinking a Mountain Dew on like a 130 mile training ride. But anyways, digressing, nice. follow your path and not everybody else's on Strava and you'll find way more happiness on this. Um, let's do a couple nutrition questions. What do you, you mentioned eating on the bike. How do you help athletes understand how much they need to be fueling? What are your kind of recommendations? And I realize that might vary athlete to athlete. So you can go general or specific, however you want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. On, on bike, I like, I find variation to, to help me. Um, if you find something that works, it, it might not work forever. Um, I, I've switched through a lot of different things. And even on race day, I eat different things than when I train, um, which I mean, on, on race day, I'm usually pretty gel heavy, pretty basic carb heavy, whatever I can get into the bottles. Um, things that are going to go down easy while I'm going hard. Um, you can, yeah, whatever, whatever way you need to get sugar down um, that your stomach can handle and that you're not going to be sad about eating, you know, um, if that means you take an uncrustable and eat it in the middle of your seven hour race, take an uncrustable. If you're like, yeah, I want an uncrustable right now. That's like, that's what you need to put in your body. Um, during, during training, a lot of times I'll go with solid food just because usually with racing, I'm a little tired of, uh, little tired of the gels and just drinking sugar. Um, but yeah, always in the bottles, I've got some sort of electrolyte mix or sugar, um, just to get those, those carbohydrates in pretty easy way. Um, and then, Oh, sorry about that. Uh, and then, yeah, during, during racing, it's, it's pretty gel sugar heavy, um, depending on what I have access to. Mm -hmm. I think the only thing I would recently push back on it when you're like, if that's what you want, eat it. I have a few bike packers that I coach. Uh, one is very fast. And I was looking through his, I think he did tour divide. I can't remember if it was then, or I was looking through some old photos and just getting a vibe of like this guy style. He does insane mega freaking rides. And one of the pictures was this huge cheeseburger fries and something like super greasy. And I was looking, he had this on Strava and then, the comment down the road was like, then I started to get like kind of nauseous. Da, da, da. And I was like, Hey man, did you put together? That was probably that burger fries. And what I can't remember the other things he ate, but it was a fat America 
like pull up. He's like, I will say that is probably my weakness. I get tempted by that. And I'm like, but you literally wrote on Strava that you felt horrible after. Like, that's your clue. Like, don't necessarily always listen to your mind. But I yeah. get what you're saying. But that's the one caveat for someone who might be listening. Like, I just want to eat garbage stuff. Maybe, maybe yeah. there's a better option. Experiment with it. See how you feel afterwards. But yeah, it's. Yeah, that's that's a good catch. I, I suppose within reason, eat within what you reason. want to. You yeah. know, you're trying you're trying to be an athlete still. Um, yeah, 100%. so that that consideration should be there. Um, but it's supposed to be fun too. Like there, there's not a lot of people getting paid to race their bike in the world. Um, so we can we can have fun with it. <laughs> yeah, got to. So even if you're getting paid, you got to have fun with it. What's yeah, even if you're, I'm not I'm not very up on this, but I don't necessarily follow it um specifically for racing but low fiber diets for racing maybe you or anybody on your team or any athletes do they do that and i guess just to preface for people you know low fiber you're going to have uh supposed less body weight on race day um because you're Mm -hmm. retaining less water is that something that you follow or any athletes of yours sort of follow that protocol um, I can, so to, like a brief overview of low fiber, which is also called low residue. Yes. Um, the concept is kind of to flush your intestines out of, uh, that like fiber material and like, consequently you're losing, uh, micro bacteria that are in your gut. Um, so yeah, you do lose some weight, but I'm not aware of a, an, an overwhelming, like amount of studies on it as far as uh, performance goes. It's like, it's a technique that has been used if you're getting a colonoscopy, right? Like it's gut preparation. You, yeah. So you wait, was I wrong? Stomach. Was it, is it not a weight? I thought people were doing it for reduced weight. It is for reduced weight. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, the, uh, the overall, the overall goal of that is to reduce weight. And if you're losing performance or you're increasing your susceptibility to getting, an infection or some sort of gut problem. Um, yeah, I, I think the overwhelming view of it would, yeah, would like, look at, look at what you eat right now. If you're eating a bunch of fiber, um, maybe don't do it right before a race or something like that. But yeah, uh, as far as gut preparation goes, low fiber, stuff like that, I, I don't personally do it and I don't prescribe it. I've seen athletes do it before and yeah, it can work, but anything over a week of doing it can, can cause problems as far as I'm aware, um, in, in scientific literature. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's something you got to be careful with. Um, Mm -hmm. there's not, yeah, there's not a lot of, not a lot of research out there. We don't quite understand what it does in, in the long term to your gut. Um, and if, if you're just trying to lose weight for a specific race day, um, there, there, there could be other ways to do it like as far as a longevity approach. Um, that's, Yeah. yeah, that's real. I feel like gut preparation is a really high end technique that uh, most athletes don't really need. Um, yeah. And honestly, I, I would never use personally um, just well, for fear of yeah long-term effects or um, not knowing what it does to you. Speaking about like high level techniques, what about fasted or carb restricted training? And do you prescribe that at all to people or what are your thoughts on that? Um, most of, most of the workouts, I've done fasted or anything like that. Uh, I haven't seen like a real benefit personally from them. I, I haven't done fasted training in a long time and I I've never prescribed it to an athlete. It, it's yeah, it's super high level and there's way more potential to disrupt your body's metabolism or to like 
dig yourself into a hole you can't come back from. Um, so I, I hesitate to, to do any sort of, any sort of training fasted. Um, I feel like for most athletes, you can get a bigger benefit from doing a hard workout with food in your belly and a smile on your face than if you're just riding easy on, on a fasted thing. But that's, yeah, that's my personal comfort level with it. Yeah, no, I would agree. I've, I, there were people that got me into it and this was probably 2017 and never felt great. It had more negative effects than any benefit that I ever felt. And just, I always go back. I always reference James Piccoli who kind of talked about, he's like, man, the people that are doing it, it's like the cherry on top, finding that 0.01% and just the downside though is so much bigger than the upside. Um, and then Stephen Baz, who, when I, I can't remember what I asked him or how I asked him the question, but he's like, I'm just so tired of people saying fat burning, like you burn fat while you're eating carbs still, it's not this on off switch. And so I think it's just the headlines and some, yeah, it can, it's distracting more than helpful. Um, so that made me stressed out thinking about that. What's a good method for stress reduction or management? Yeah, that's, ooh, that's a, that's a big one right there. Um, yeah. I think, but I, I the, think yeah, under, that, underplayed, I don't think we think about it enough, myself included of how does extraneous things in life and especially things that we can't control come in and affect our training. And then what do we do to get around that? Yeah. I, ooh, man, my, my entire approach to cycling in a way that I race a lot and I travel a lot. So, um, stress management has to be, um, key for me where I'm like, I'm traveling all the time. So different activities I've got to, yeah. Like, so if I'm, if I'm packing, I need to do it in a low stress way. So I can't be like fumbling around real fast and like elevating those stress levels. Um, and that's, that's hard. Like you've got to, you've really got to focus on like breathing, you know, like not, not stressing out about basic stuff. So my, my main focus has been making activities that can be stressful, a little less stressful, like have, have your ducks in a row, um, beforehand, be able to pack in a way that is consistent and that you don't have to do a lot of critical thinking, um, to do. Um, that's, that's a pretty specific example, but yeah, if, if you can streamline your life, I love calendars because now you know what you need to be doing at this particular time. Um, if you can, yeah, if you can get a calendar going, just kind of understand right now, what's the focus, how much do you need to focus on it? Um, and it, it does, it does reduce some stress, especially if you're in a, yeah, a time starved position where you've got a job and you're trying to race, um, and you're maybe trying to travel just, yeah, as much preparation as you can. Um, I'm a boy scout, so we do the be prepared, you know, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> like that's a, that's a big one. It's still ingrained in you. Be, I think preparation is great. I think calendars is a great thing. I've really, I didn't love the whole book, but the, uh, the book, the power, I think, wait, is this, I might be com- confusing books, the power of one, but it's like, what's the one thing that's going to move the needle right now? And are you focused on doing it? And that has been something I've tried to get better at. Um, and then I would actually add to that, you know, I would make a to-do list. And then if I really critically thought about it, it was impossible to do this whole list. So half a list, I'd move to the next day. And then I'd get to Friday. I'm like, oh, damn, there's like a week of stuff here. So it was also then boiling down what stuff can I actually get rid of? Because it's not going to get done anyways. And being realistic with that list helped me to reduce stress, 
because nobody likes to get to the end of the day and be like, okay, well, I didn't do seven things that I said I was going to do. Yeah. He had no chance of doing all those things. So some reality saying no. Yeah. Saying no. I like that. That That was a question in Tim Ferriss's tribe of mentors book. He had asked people, how do you get better at saying no? And it's interesting, you know, some people do struggle with that. They just say yes to everything. And then that gets them in uh, some murky water when you can't come through and live up to your end of the bargain for the deal. Uh, last question, unless there's something else you want to touch on, do you use anything like a whoop, an aura ring, no wearable? You'd kind of mentioned before there's so much data. So do you want more data or less data? Where, what do you think? Uh, for me, uh, the whoop and aura ring stuff just kind of tells me things I already know. Um, I can see, I can see on a, yeah, an introductory athlete standpoint or someone who's less experienced maybe, um, or just doesn't have the lessons of if you drink at night, you're going to sleep a little less good, you know, (laughs) like, um, that the whoop can tell you that, um, pretty much what the whoop's going to tell you is you need to go to bed earlier and you need not drink. And like, that's, that's some big lessons right there. You know, like that, that's pretty easy. Um, if you want to pay me, uh, you know, whatever subscription, I'll, I'll just text you that every day. Um, like, <laughs> the will whoop. we can do that. Um, <laughs> don't drink today and go to bed early. Like it's not, it's not crazy, but yeah, there's a lot of data in them. I it's, they're interesting, but right now it's, it's almost too much. Um, and, and people are like, oh, my whoop score is great today. And then like, what, what do you do with that information? And is it true? Like, is it accurate to how you're going to feel on the bike? I like, it's not going to tell you muscle soreness. You know, there's so many more things um, and just going on. Like, I feel good like that. Sometimes that's better. Or like I didn't drink last night. So I slept. (laughs) Yeah. I think that I feel good. And then also I had an athlete recently that said, I felt great. I almost decided to extend the ride, but I thought forward and said, no, you know, I really want to crush the workout on Tuesday. So this was what was assigned. I'm going to cross this box off and I don't need to be racked. I can go home and feel good. And I was like, dude, that you are growing as an athlete. That is amazing because six months ago, he would have just been like, I feel amazing. I'm going to go crush myself. And then it's like the next three days suck because he's just in a hole. And I shouldn't say hole. That's overused term. He was just super fatigued. But yeah, I agree with the whoop. I think if anybody wants to learn more about sleep, the book, Why We Sleep by, I believe his name is Matthew Walker. It was recommended by Huberman Lab. It is so well written. It is extremely interesting. I know sleep is important, but in a very digestible way. He talks about so many different aspects of sleep that you're going to learn a lot. It's very entertaining. And I feel really good when I go to bed early because I just, man, I wish I had more of those like go to bed early nights, but Hey, no better time than the present. So right. (laughs) (laughs) what other training topics maybe did I miss anything in here that you want to get across to new athletes, old athletes, experienced athletes, people trying to get better. Yeah. Uh, to quickly continue touching on wearables and stuff. I am, I do want to say like, I'm excited about more information. Um, the, uh, like core sensors, the core temperature mm-hmm. stuff. I think that's pretty interesting. And then like glucose monitoring stuff mm-hmm. is, is pretty interesting. I think we're, we're going to start using super sapien stuff in training. Um, 
and I've, I've never used it before, but yeah, having that data and like being able to interpret it, the hardest part is having someone who can interpret it and then have actionable intelligence off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and right now, like we, we can see examples in the Gustav Eden, um, the, the guys in triathlon at the top end are using all these different wearables and data, um, and then adjusting their training off of them. But like, we don't know yet how to, how to do that for a time starved person who can't do training all the time. Um, so yeah, I think as we understand the wearables and all this data a little more and have some actionable intelligence and good advice off of them, I think that'll be cool. But right now, simple, simple is, is great. Like sleep more. Have you looked into these enough or can you explain more for us about what would a rider hope to gain from wearing a glucose monitor or what are some of these actionable items that these athletes are currently taking based on what they've seen? Have you read, do you know much about that in detail that you could share? Uh, so there's, uh, a podcast, the Rich Roll podcast. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you're familiar with that one. Uh, he yeah. talked to that whole like Norwegian train is what they call it. Gustav Eden and um, what's his name? Christian Blumenfeld. And they have the same coach. They kind of live like monks in their little, their little training facility. Um, and their coach is really into this stuff. And they did, I think two, two hour podcasts with a ton of information in there about how they specifically apply it. But yeah, there's plenty of things you can read on it right now. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have like a lot of information that I can cool. easily and actionably yeah, yeah. say. But those podcasts are super interesting. Um, if you want to get your foot in the door on like how the top end guys are using it, um, yeah. and maybe how it does or does not apply um, to athletes who and may not know what they're doing. You can't race with them right now, right? Because that's what happened with Kristen Faulkner. She got disqualified because she had one on or something, even though it wasn't recorded, yeah. I believe. UCI races, I, you're not allowed to. I don't even, I don't think USA cycling races, you can. I don't, like, I don't know the utility of having them in the race. Um, yeah. I don't really understand if she would have a benefit from having a glucose monitor on there, especially if she can't see it or right. if it wasn't on. Um, so, yeah, it's controversial, but. Yeah, you you can't race with them right now. I don't I don't know what benefit it would have in a race anyway at the moment. The um in triathlon they do race with them and they do race with the core temp sensors and the, like they can tell when their core temp's going up, stuff like that, and have actionable. It's like something they can do to reduce that core temperature. Um, but. I almost wonder if that's gonna like bring people like psych people out because yeah, if your core temperature is rising and I'm in Georgia at a road race, I'm trying to cool myself no matter what, if it's not going to help me to be like, you're getting hot. It's like, well, geez, thanks. I know I can feel that it's really freaking hot right now. I'm putting ice packs on like, what do you want me to do? Jump in a cooler. I don't know. I think maybe the data would be interesting if your core temperature hit this, your Watts dropped to this, or if, as you said, there's some train implication that we can then train, you need to go, do intervals and then you need to go sit in a sauna or you need to blah, blah, blah. I mean, to make those connections, is going to be years down the road. I think who knows, maybe someone super smart comes along and figures out a quick, you know, <laughs> new algorithm, but right. yeah, heat power goes down. How do you change that? It's going to be very athlete dependent too. So interesting. Can, uh, I'll, show. I'll share that podcast with you. Cause they, they go into with the core temp sensor you can tell like core temp changes, obviously, 
But uh, one thing that they went into was your efficiency as far as your body converting energy into power and then how much heat loss there is, which you can change, like you can modify through training. I thought that was interesting and they can like they were working on changing their heat efficiency of their body, which mm. like, yeah, I, man, that's, that's a, that's a pretty high level topic, but I think that's a super interesting metric to be able to look at. If you can email me that link and the two rich roll mm-hmm. links, I'll put those in the show notes. And with that, any other closing notes off the wearables? That's it. <laughs> That's it, man. Thanks for doing this. Uh, yeah. Anybody needs to contact Wills, Will at evoke.bike. I'm Brendan at evoke.bike. Thanks for tuning in the podcast. Good luck with your training. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. We greatly appreciate it. And we'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye. Bye.